All right, good morning, everybody. You can tell we're in Minnesota based on how people are dressed when they come to church. Parka, hats, scarves. The winter winter stuff comes out. Not this bad. Okay, let me start our slideshow. All right, good morning. Now, I changed this one for my benefit. You all have last week's, but we only covered one verse. So today we're going to start in verse 28. So last week's notes will work because you have verse 28. We may get further, but I, I seriously doubt it because this particular verse, Acts 20, 28, is loaded with material about the church, the ministries of the church, the role of the church, of elders. It, it's, there's so much in this verse, I can't overemphasize how important Acts 20.28 is for defining the church and her leadership. So let's begin with prayer. I'll read the passage and we'll dig into it in detail. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to gather together. We continue to pray for Pastor Eric that you bring healing and relief to him as he's had this surgery and is recovering. We pray that you'd help us to understand your word today with clarity and may we uh, encourage one another as we study together. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today... Let me see here if I can get all of this. Let me read this passage. Conceptually, there is a lot. Last week, we were on verse 27. Now, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now, this is amazing in its importance and its profundity. Uh, Brian, do you want to read verse 27 to set the stage? I took mine off of the... For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Yeah, the whole counsel of God, the whole purpose of God, that was last week. Okay, So what we emphasize was the need for the leadership of the church to teach to every, whatever group they're part of, the whole revealed purpose, will, intention of God. And uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 is important there, where it says the things revealed, the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed are for you. So if something is revealed, it's clear in the Bible, or even if it's difficult, the elders should always have a hunger for the truth and a desire that every member of the body of Christ is equipped, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, and that we dutifully teach and declare the whole counsel of God. That was Paul's example to them. And so on the heels of that, we go to verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Now, we'll see in future weeks when we get to the next couple of verses that the danger that will come and most certainly did and will is both internal and external. He will go on to say that here, let me give you a little preview here. After my departure, wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, from among your own selves, men will arise. So they come from the outside, and they arise from the inside. And the way you know the difference between the wolves and the true shepherds who care for the flock is by both their teaching and their 
life as far as how they treat people and who's important. And the great danger that will shoot down groups that otherwise are hungry to to learn and, and to love the Lord, many times status rivalry is the danger that destroys churches. And that'll come up again and again. I'll talk about it a little bit in the sermon. This is, uh, this last week, I spent so much time in so many passages. I hopefully get focused here for both Sunday school and church. But I was noticing in Luke, we're in Luke Acts. I was noticing, you know, that great big section we keep emphasizing um, from Luke 9, 51, until the entry of Christ the journey to Jerusalem to be uh, rejected. Before that, the disciples are arguing who's the greatest. And I'll mention in the sermon today, at the Lord's Supper, right after that, they're arguing who's the greatest. And since that comes up um, right after the travel narrative of, to be rejected, and right before, after Transfiguration, I have to believe, I was looking at this this week again, I have to believe that's on purpose. Luke put that there on purpose, and his purpose is to show what the most grave danger is to congregations that are founded on the gospel. And the most grave threat is trying to have honor by comparing others unfavorably to your own self. Who's the greatest? And we were talking about that before we started here. When it comes, you know what the answer is? We don't know. And 1 Corinthians 4, 5 was so helpful in that regard, where it says that don't go on passing judgment before the time, wait till the Lord comes. The reason we don't know is because we don't have the knowledge of things that are necessary to make the correct judgment. We know what God's called, but we don't know the motives of the heart. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait till the Lord comes. What does the Lord know that we don't know? The thoughts and motives of the heart. We can see, and so we can see who's talented and who's interesting and who's uh, able to draw a big crowd, and so on. But we don't know the, the thoughts and intents of the heart. Only God knows that. And so the danger is that the Lord's flock, the little ones, these little ones who believe in me, that he died for and purchased with his own blood, would be harmed, taken advantage of, pushed to the side, ignored, put in a corner or determined to be of no importance by leadership who would want to be who's the greatest. Go ahead, uh, Brother Brian. Well, I hate to keep beating a dead horse, but we witnessed this with TCF where when it talks about from without and from within, you could be worshiping with people for 10, 12, 15 years, and all of a sudden these people rise up and they don't want to hear or put into practice the truth of God's word. The, the whole counsel of God. Well, that's to help us know what's important, we have these passages. Okay? And uh, one thing I know is you cannot silence the church. Everyone whom God has called and redeemed and made part of his family is important in the body. And we can't ever silence the church. That's why we have the mics here. We want to hear. doesn't mean we agree with everything anybody might say, but we want to honor the ideas and, and understanding of the scripture that everyone would have by searching the scriptures. What we agree on is the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. 
and that if we can understand what God said, and if it can be applied logically in, ne- in a necessary way, that's what pro- essence of prophecy. This is binding. This is true. We can learn, and it doesn't matter who, whose mouth the truth comes from. If the most insignificant appearing person would tell someone who's lost the gospel, they've given the opportunity for repentance and redemption, and which is a great riches, which is more important than anything, more valuable than anything. So it doesn't matter who you are in the eyes of others. It's the truth and the message and how we care for everyone, no matter who they might be. That is hard to maintain, easy to lose, and in the institutional church, it's squashed and destroyed every time. I don't know a single case where a large institution exists that even cares about that. And that's why I'm so against the institutional church. I don't believe it's biblical. Institutional churches, institutions exist to perpetuate the institution, to cause the institution to be more powerful, to have cause the institution to be bigger, to cause the institution to multiply, and eventually the descendants of the founders of the institution become the rulers of the institution and those descendants typically are not anything like the original people who maybe had good intentions. But I've seen that so often. So the local church is consists of those who know Christ, the, the Lord's flock. And we don't need to have in our minds, how can I create an institution so 100 years from now I'll be really big and all these things will... Why even think like that? Because I promise you, it will not be good. It'll end up preserving the traditions of man. So we need to guard first being God for yourselves. Let's get to our passage. And for all, notice that, for all the flock. For all the flock. So the calling and duties of local church leaders, be on guard. Now, the word for be on guard, which I ran a search on, is pros echo, which is used 24 times in the New Testament. Here uh, is, a, if you want to turn to this one, Luke 12, 1. Remember Luke Acts, two-volume work? It's amazing how, how these themes are repeated. Luke 12.1 uses this word, be on guard or beware, or it could mean to hold to, to hold to. And I'll show you the range of meaning. But Luke 12.1 says, <coughs> Luke 12.1, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. Sounds like a concert, right? For a rock star or somebody. A soccer game, there it is. A sporting event. He began saying to his disciples, it's, <laughs> look at this. First of all, beware. There's our word. Here, be on guard. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, think of the context. Look at Luke 12, 1, Acts 20, 28. It's used other times in Luke Acts. Why, when you have all of these people, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Seems out of place. Why are you saying that? Does anybody want to um, discuss that? Why would he say that in that context of Luke 12? Is it, is it because 
Go ahead. To because what you're talking about right now, you know, what, what we're supposed to see as Christians is what God has done for the individual, how he's saved him, how he's opened up his eyes to the gospel, rather than the institution, the, the um, hypocrisy of the Pharisees is the institution. Is that what you're saying? Well, the, the crowd, I'm thinking about this massive crowd. Now, could you, have you, are you in Luke 12? Could you read the, could you explain the context? Well, they're, they're all gathered, they're all gathered together, and um, the, this warning comes out, and it's because certainly, certainly you would think that within these thousands of people, there's people within that group that are wolves. So the warning is to, we don't know who they are, just like we don't know who the hidden church is. You got to be uh, on guard uh, for these people. The big, the big crowd. Why? I don't have my. No. I just I found the cross reference. What caused the big crowd to show up? Well, Jesus. Okay, so they came to hear him, yeah. and there there's a great big crowd. The big crowd is the danger. Because there's your opportunity for status. Okay? The big crowd is what um, leads to movements that create institutions that self-perpetuate. So the, the, the hypocrisy would be, look at me, I have a big crowd, everybody wants to hear me, starts to get in our minds... Where there's an exhilaration from success and a desire to, what are you going to do? Let's, what would you do if you got a big crowd? Well, you take up an offering, right? Yeah, so, uh, John, John MacArthur said, what is his book? Uh, Hard to Believe. That was one of the first. That's a good book. Yeah. He said, Jesus Christ spent more time turning people away than he did getting them. <laughs> good. And I think That's that in, good. In the, in the church that I grew up in, and I'm talking about the pop Christian church, there's the idea that we're all supposed to be getting people. Get them into church, whatever it takes, entertainment, whatever it is, and then they'll get saved vicariously through that entertainment. But Jesus spent more time turning people away. Yeah, so that's a very good reading. I, I appreciate that. Uh, why would you turn anybody? You know, we won't. If you're going to try to get a, the biggest crowd possible, you maximize it and then keep it that way. Go ahead. What about the scribes and Pharisees that were within this large crowd? Would they be the the leaven? <laughs> well, the where the leaven of the Pharisees is described as hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Is a, uh, means a play actor, and in the context of a religious movement, and someone is filled with hypocrisy, that would make that those persons play actors. What role are you going to play? The one who's responsible for success and religious status. Go ahead, uh, Dan. I was just looking at uh, the, earlier where it says, as he was, this is on uh, eleven thirty-seven. he says, as he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. And it's, it's kind of like this whole, you know, I got to look, you know, I just think of my Catholic upbringing too, how they... Would, would so emphasize this dramatic, you know, this thing at the altar where they wash their hands and they look, they got the, you know, everything is, you know, so spiritual in their eyes that um, if you deviate from anything and within that, you look like, you know, you're, you're denounced as a, like a heretic or something. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's just a similar thing. It's just uh, looking at the outside of everything and not the, yeah. you know, the inside. The outside is everything. Yeah. And the heart, which we can't see, doesn't even register. Now, 
uh, go, uh, well, if you think about some of the other incidents in Luke, there is one of my favorites is there's a, they're inviting Jesus for this meal. And while he's there, in comes a sinner, an immoral woman who weeps on his feet. And uh, Luke is telling us the people at the meal, the important religious people are thinking, now we know he's not a prophet. I, I, I know it's in Luke. I don't have the verse reference right now. Because if he were a prophet, he'd know what manner of person this is and wouldn't allow himself to be defiled like this. And then Jesus, doesn't he go on to say, her sins, which are many, are forgiven? Okay, so the, there's warnings everywhere about not making judgments about relative value of people who may come and express hunger for the Lord and a desire to learn. And beware, same word, be on guard, beware to leaven of Pharisees is once you create a system that rewards and honors certain things, status vis-a-vis others, that system will strangle the gospel. And they'll be vying for places of honor. Another time, Jesus knows how they're picking out places of honor at the table. So I believe that more than anything else, and this will be fit in with the sermon today because we're going to go back over the Lord's Supper because uh, today is Communion Sunday, that making judgments about the relative status of other Christians vis-a-vis ourselves is a huge danger. So when Paul's addressing the elders, he's warning them. Look at me. I'm an elder. I'm an episcopos. I'm God's person. And this is, I'm important, so you better fall in line and make sure I get all the status and honor. And, you know, Dan, mentioning uh, Rome, there is no system called Christian that I've ever read about that creates more of that than Rome does. The number of levels I can't even name all the levels of, of authority and status and whatever. And it not only comes out with the names, it comes out in the garb, comes out in the buildings, it comes out in the ceremonies. And at the bottom of the line is some ordinary person needing the truth. Some widow, some person that uh, needs to hear the gospel and they don't get it. They don't get it. So that is, it's utterly stunning when you put this together. And Luke Acts is the two-volume work by one author inspired by the Holy Spirit has definitely changed my life. Uh, Brian, there's Peter and Brian. Brian, uh, go ahead, Peter. You got the mic. Possession. Um. <laughs> so uh, your point about the woman that Christ, you know, I mean, she basically threw herself at his feet. Right. She recognized her unrighteousness. Yeah. They did not recognize no. their unrighteousness. They, they recognized their own righteousness in their own eyes. The hypocrisy you're referring to. So the other thing I think our church maybe struggles with because we love the gospel so much and um, certainly some of the evangelical team could relate to this. You know, when you go out and you share the gospel, we can't, it's good news. I can't figure out why our church isn't packed and I have to, I have to dial back because I'm a numbers guy, uh, you know, a results guy that we're into quality, not quantity. And that's a tough thing to reconcile because it's not popular. Uh, (laughs) That's why we don't have huge numbers 
the throng and the multitude here, it's not popular. Well, so, we want to make sure we feed whoever shows up. Right. In God's providence, uh, to help, uh, I honestly think I need to continue on this plan of defining the church. I think it's critical. All those years on 24th and Nicola with this massive building that I ended up, the boiler mechanic, the lawn guy, the roof guy. I mean, this, this thing was, it was, the city kept assessing us and we didn't have any money. The, the vandalism, the bad neighborhood, all of this stuff. And on Wednesday night, we'd be down there with a handful of people reading the Psalms and praying. You don't need a million-dollar building to have five people reading your psalms and praying on Wednesday night. Yeah, but I, I didn't buy the building. It just ended up, we managed to sell it eventually. So, uh, yeah, go ahead, Brian. Um, yeah, so the, this idea, this concept of status-seeking is very interesting. I think it's, you've mentioned this before, and I think it's finally starting to sink in where you can see it as an underlying factor in the narrative. It's really kind of interesting. So I was sitting here thinking about, you're using the word status, but there's another word in our modern culture is followers. So YouTube, TikTok, social media. Why did they build in a count of your followers? Because it's that human nature that wants to know how many people are following you. Right. Right? So here we've got Pharisees that are like, look at how many people are following that guy. We got to go cut him down. Right. And you see that actually on YouTube. Somebody will get really super popular. Somebody else will create a YouTube channel talking about how big of a fraud the other guy is. Right, so then their popularity is based on all the people that hate the other guy. So right. that whole idea of fo- wanting followers is is it's it's baked into human nature. Exactly, it's a flaw. It's the fall. It's the fall. Um, thank you. Very good um, um, comments that you made, Brian. The fact is that it's the fallen world, and we keep score. And you got to know how you keep score. And the reason I'm so down on the institutions is the way institutions keep score is different than how the Lord does. The Lord himself knows the motives of the heart. So if you have a massive um, bunch of followers and money and buildings and, and it gets bigger and bigger, that's success. And the, the, the tragedy even in groups, and I thank God for some of the wonderful preachers and teachers I had early in my Christian life 50 years ago. But one of the best teachers I had, somebody donated, a whole, and there was nothing wrong with the guy, but somebody donated a bunch of land to have a new Bible college. And so they took him and put him in charge of that new Bible college to administrate it. And it because that's what you do with your best talent. But I'm glad he wasn't there when I was in Bible college because I learned from him teaching me. So the institution takes the best talent, the people that have the most going for them, and put them in charge of a massive part of the institution, and the ordinary young persons coming needing teaching, they're not there for that. They're there to run this institution. And it's like shooting oneself in the foot as far as taking care of the flock. Because the assumption is the massive institution is going to do a better job of reaching more people. But who ends up face-to-face with the student trying to learn is often somebody who's not anywhere near uh, able to teach is the guy they put in charge of a Bible college. Go ahead, uh, Luann. Well, I was thinking of how um, when you look at the life of Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians, you know, he was saying 
what am I, who is Paul, who is Apollos, because they were trying to raise these people up to status. Right. And um, so, you know, Paul had this, often when I think of Paul, I'm thinking about him, you know, constantly correcting doctrine and just this strong individual and, you know, having all of these uh, characteristics. And even in uh, Philippians three seventeen, he says, be imitators of me. So it's kind of like, wow, who has the gall to say, be an imitator of me and not be of status, you know? But in, if you go back to chapter two, he has his solution, which is having the same mind and the same spirit. But he said, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. That's what the imitate is exactly. Yes. So he does. Good cl- reading. But it's you know because we, you talked about it last week. If I'm going to cherry pick a verse, and it's and I read, be imitators of me. Well, some big leader is going to pick that and say, imitate me, but he doesn't qualify it like Paul did in chapter 2. Yeah, thank you. Very good reading. Yeah, and also Paul had a thorn in the flesh that the Lord wouldn't take away from him. Right. And why wouldn't he take it away? Because he didn't want him to be too proud. Keep him from exalting himself. There is the key. I'm finding that everywhere. Uh, That this idea to exalt ourselves is the Achilles heel. And if you want to go back, that's that's an analogy from, what is it, uh, mythology, Achilles' heel. Anyhow, go back to the fall. What was one of the things that was most enticing to Eve? You can be like God. So if you're going to ascend the ladder of importance, why not go for the top? She didn't, she wasn't tempted to be like one of the animals Adam named. You can be like God, knowing good and evil. You can have the highest. And so there is, and if you look at, isn't it Isaiah 14 about the fall, the king of Babylon, which I think is an analogy of Satan? I will exalt. Am I right about Isaiah 14? There it is again. Let, let's, let me get a few more things out of my notes here and then we'll discuss it so be on guard is can also mean to devote yourself it's used in 1 Timothy 4.13 until I come devote yourself or you, you could translate it hold yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation and to teaching it's also that same word prosecco uh, to, to uh, hold to. Now, I want to cite a scholar. As, let's look at the passage. So the first thing, the first duty is to be on guard for yourselves. Make sure the leaven of the Pharisees doesn't get a hold of you. In the context of a big crowd coming, they're falling over each other. How many, if you just look at the culture in America, it's a good point. Now with the, everybody gets to be a star on their YouTube channel or whatever. What happens, even in our life, a lot of us have been around for a while. I was born in 1950. But what happened to a lot of the young people that had talent and ended up being rock stars, movie stars, highly, you know, regarded? It, It ended up being the destruction of many. Many died before they even made it to 30 years old because they were ordinary people. All of a sudden, they're more important than everybody else. That's a da- it's a danger. It's a danger to everyone, to every one of us, to me. It's a danger. And I think Paul revealing th- these things about himself, that he was as bad as he was, and they got beat up and rejected as bad as he was. The thorn of the flesh made it possible for him to say these things. So be on guard for yourselves, this is to the elders, and for all the flock. So we got to make sure we aren't saying, hey, I'm important, so where's my honor? And the other one is, for all the flock, meaning everyone God has saved, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos. Now there's another term, and what we need to take from that 
is that these are the elders that came from Ephesus to Miletus to hear Paul's speech about this, to teach them. They're the same people called Episcopos. So the uh, overseer, the elder, Presbyteros, and the shepherd, here uses a verb, they're the same people. You don't have layers of status. You have elders who are overseers, who are shepherds. And their role is to guard the flock, to teach the truth, and to serve and to care for everyone. And it's a very difficult job. There's a thousand ways to fail. What it would look like to do it successfully is hard to define, but we're defining it here. So the irony about elders is that once you understand it, you don't want to do it. But yet God calls people to do it. Does that make sense? It's very difficult. And it doesn't mean that the elders are held to some standard that others aren't. It's the standard that God's given for all Christians. But you're looking for those who actually, by God's grace, live it out. Um, to shepherd, and here's our word, poimino, to shepherd, and the, the noun is also used elsewhere, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The mention of the blood atonement here is to emphasize to the Ephesian elders that this is a precious group of people purchased with a price, the price of the blood of Jesus. And that looking on, we see everyone purchased by the blood as highly significant, blood-bought, loved by God, and to be cared for with the ultimate concern and therefore correcting error is not done to say those correcting the error are smarter than the ones in there. The point of correcting error that comes in from everywhere is to guard the flock from deception. And uh, from personal experience, in the 80s, for example, uh, the group I was with brought in a teacher that would expose all of the, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Dave Hunt wrote The Seduction of Christianity. So, you know what happened? <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, um, we were accused of attacking Christians, harming people, doing evil, dividing the church, bringing all this bad stuff. Now, that particular seminar was about the many things, inner healing, uh, the health and wealth gospel, the false teachings of this, that, and the other thing. And some pastors that were friends of mine didn't want anything to do with me anymore. You divided the church, and shame on you. We're done with you. I used to have to keep track of honoraria because it was one of the ways I was able to survive in the 80s. After Dave Hunt spoke, and I don't agree with everything Dave Hunt taught, but he was right on the issue of Israel and also Islam, Rome, and air in the church. So, and I've met him many times. He's not with the Lord. But why would, it went down to no honoraria because nobody would want me to ever speak again to anybody because I was associated with someone who corrected air. Now, that shows, if you look at this, why would it be evil to guard the flock against false teachers. What sort of movement considers it the cardinal sin to correct error? 
it's, it's amazing. It's all I can say. Um, one leader did ask me to come and speak to him. It's an older gentleman. And, well, probably younger than I am now. <laughs> I was young then. Um, and God leads us. So I'm sitting here to go in and tell him why what he was, he was bringing in false prophets who were making grand claims. So I was in the parking lot. I got there early. I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading a passage in Timothy. It says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but to appeal to him as a father. So, you remember that verse? So I'm there all charged up. I'm going to go let this guy have it. And I read that. Changed my whole <laughs> Wow. Okay, Lord. And so I thank God for that. I got in there. And I said, well, why would you bring somebody in who teaches these things? And so then he told me, he said, well, this guy says, I said, why don't you teach the Bible? He says, the guy says, why, I'm like a pilot. I take off from the Bible and I land there, but I do a lot of flying around in the meantime. So I said, well, I think the flying around is where we have our problem. <laughs> Go ahead. You, uh, you've said numerous times in the past that if we're hearing you teach something and we want to debate with you, you, you welcome the debate. That's our job as the flock. Listen to what you yeah, teach. Yeah, it, it's and very you, helpful. And, yeah, and if you need to be confronted, I'm like 0 for 20 on things that I thought were right, but so you're winning Oh, there. I don't know that <laughs> no, that's the case. But, but, but here's the thing. You have to have, if, if you have a, 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 a teacher who doesn't want that debate, that would be the time to leave because they don't want to be corrected. They want to control. You know, it's a good thing for all teachers to know that that's valid. It's what 1 Corinthians 14 is about prophecy and judging of prophecy. You may all prophesy one by one, the others judge. The, when you think I have such status that nobody I teach will ever challenge me about anything, you're not bewaring you're not being wary of the leaven of the Pharisees. That is the danger. And some of the better readings that have helped me have come from people reading things and sharing it here. And I would rather be corrected than to keep teaching something that can't be proven from Scripture. Let me read a scholar on this. I've noticed that scholars don't have the same concern. They're their biggest concern is to get it right in the, because that's what if they are they're very good at explaining the text the commentaries will become ones that people want in their library so I find better stuff sometimes from scholars because their job is to get it right from the text if they're writing a good commentary Dr. Schnabel says this about this guarding the flock the traditional historical origin of the term it's less important than its use in the New Testament. And he lists a bunch of the times it's used. One of the things, I'm always hoping people, God raise, as God raises up people, the technology is amazing. Uh, you can, with a logo software, run a list of all the times the word's used in a parallel column with the Greek and the English. And then it's so, I have that here. I have a couple pages of it. Every time the word for beware, be on guard is used from the Greek, I have here. And then you can see every time in Luke Acts, which is very common, um, pay attention and so on. So use the tools. So, this is supported by the evidence of Paul's letters, says Schnabel, including the pastoral epistles. The two designations of elder and overseer, says Schnabel, refer to the same office. So there's a scholar that knows that. How come denominational churches don't know it? Well, 
They don't care because they can look it up. It's the same people. So uh, a bishop is sometimes a term used to, the King James uses that for the word overseer. It doesn't mean someone who has authority at some other location. It's the same people here from Ephesus. They refer to the same office. While elder connotes the age, the experience and wisdom of the leaders of Christian community, says Schnabel. The term overseer underlies the more active side of their work in managing affairs, guarding the group, and directing activities. The plural of both terms connotes plural leadership. The mo- but I'll, I'll keep reading. Um, plural leadership. The leadership of the community consists not of one single overseer or bishop, but of a group of elders slash overseers. Schnabel is dead right about this. While the overseers lead the flock, they're at the same time part of the flock. So they, they're submitted to the others, into the, to the congregation, into the word of God. Um, they're part of the flock. And uh, they are not set over against the church, but are, but are an integral part of it. The care for the church is a task to which the Holy Spirit has appointed them. When Paul and his co-workers of Schnabel appoint elders with a verb, and it tells the Greek word to appoint, they acted with the authority of the Holy Spirit. The leaders of the church are neither chosen from below in a democratic election nor imposed from above by a decision of the apostles, but from within, as the Holy Spirit is a present and active in the church, as God's holy temple, choosing and preparing by his gifts those who are to be ministers. The purpose of their divine appointment is to shepherd, there's that Greek word I mentioned here, the church of God. And that's pretty amazing insight by Schnabel. Let me tell you what the biggest problem is as church history has gone on. The biggest problem. They mostly knew who the apostles were. There's debates about it. The church of Ephesus is praised in Revelation for identifying those who call themselves apostles that are not, rejecting them. But the apostles were appointed directly by Jesus Christ. They're limited. There's who they had to be. What happens after there's no apostles directly appointed by Jesus Christ? So now how do you know who the elders are? Well, what we have is the description of the elders. And the Holy Spirit is the one who makes overseers. And he does this by working in people's lives, preparing people, making it so that persons who've been around have demonstrated fruit, who aren't concerned about their own status, not greedy for money. There's other things here. Uh, and that's just something God does. We recognize it. So that's the biggest thing. Who's the elder? Well, the ones who care, who are apt to teach, and so on. There's things in Timothy about it, and I'll get to some of that. But one thing is for sure, there's no monopiscopate in the Bible. That is a big issue when you say church history, the monopiscopate. A bishop over a city, an archbishop over multiple places, and you go up the ladder. There's no leadership structure based on exalting people to status. Why would you not want a bishop that's over all of them, all these different congregations? Because that bishop doesn't even know most of the people he's over. has no clue. He doesn't know the needs of the flock. Go go ahead, Dan. No, I was just going to say real quick, 
remember reading a book, and uh, this guy named Lord Acton, he was a Catholic uh, intellectual type guy, and one of his famous quotes is, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Exactly. So the, the higher you go up, the more power you have, the more opportunity and potential for corruption. You're exactly right. Humans are corrupt, but you give more power, you have more examples of how you can corrupt it. If anybody doesn't believe in the fall, you would think they would do so after, at least here in America, what happened in Memphis. It's just heartbreaking to see evil come out like that. And how can you say humans are basically good? Um, we, I, I don't, sorry to bring up current history, but I think it's on all of our hearts and minds that how could things be so evil? Um, but that's the fall. And what's wrong with theology uh, today is a lack of belief in the fall. And so then you don't set up guards against the abuse of power. One thing that's good for all of us is to know that we can be fired. Okay? And uh, you start thinking, well, I can do whatever I want. Nobody will do anything about it. That's what happens to the rock star mentality. I, it's harmful. It's going to destroy people. Bob. Yes. Right here. Isn't that the whole point of the U.S. Constitution is checks and balances? You know, the division of government? That was, but, yet, but yet now we have a power structure where they're overriding everything, and the powerful are becoming more powerful and dictating everything. It's, it's the demise of the American Constitution that is killing us. Well... We can, that's a good illustration. Absolutely, it's an, illustration, it's an analogy. America's not a church, but it's an analogy of what can go wrong. I can tell you, having been in seminary when some of the stuff was coming in, here is the key issue that creates lawlessness. The hermeneutic that says the reader determines the meaning, not the author. As soon as that comes in, postmodern, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? Now, any written document can mean anything. Now, I wrote a book on emergent. Excuse me. And there was a chapter about that. Once, and that's exactly what these intellectuals in the emergent church did. Meaning is determined by the group they claim. So the group gets together and decides there's no hell. The group decides that there's no future judgment. The group decides God is in everything, panentheism. The group decides there's moral and spiritual evolution and basically creates the language of the fall all over again. So any written document, any system of law determines, is, is, requires that the words written in the law code mean the same thing to everyone involved. The judge can read the words, the lawyers can read the words, the people brought before the court can read the words. If we can't agree on that, what, what it means then you have nothing left but raw power and chaos. The same thing happens in the church. A great big group can't know what it means. The little engine that couldn't, I don't think I can know. Nobody knows the meaning. When in that situation, you have raw power and the young and the armed and the ruthless and the ones with no conscience will destroy everything around them because that's the only ones that are left that can prevail. So law, it has to be grounded in the meaning of the law, in our case, the scripture. We've got to know what it means. Yes, Luann. Uh, 
I'm just uh, throwing this out for ridicule, I guess. But um, it's kind of like when, you, when I think historically and the people came out of the Dark Ages, they had no education, they couldn't read anything in right. their own language. And so you had these bishops from the Catholic Church at large coming into these communities and telling them a twisted version of what scripture actually taught and they had these people in fear they were fearful if they did not do these things their soul was going to burn in hell forever and they heard this over and over okay. and we had a we have a perfect analogy of that you know two years ago when COVID started we were all at some point extremely fearful and you can't learn you can't um absorb information when you're living in fear and so um here's where my open for ridicule. But, you know, that's kind of one of the purpose of the creeds were, because you came into these communities where these people were living in absolute fear. They couldn't read their language, so they gave them kind of bullet points. Here's what you need to at least start setting up your fences. You need to know who God is. You need to know who the Son is and mm -hmm. what he did. You need to know who the Holy Spirit is. If somebody's coming into your community and distorting these, three, these things, you need to flee. You need to, you know, um, dig deeper. I mean, that's what we should be learning today because we have the tools, the internet, et cetera, um, that we can look into these things deeper. But, you know, so I guess my point is, is, you know, sometimes we say that creeds have no place, but they did in their time. Well, the reason I, yeah, I just wrote an article uh, uh, about the creedal imperative, rejecting it, not because creeds are full of air, but because the, the reason for them was because you keep the people uh, in this liturgy and they serve as a replacement for preaching the truth. I grew up in a creedal church that said Sunday after Sunday after Sunday the truth. The Sunday after Sunday, we believe. And when I asked the pastor about it at 12 years old, he said, he didn't believe those things. And no wonder they were preaching from U.S. News and World Report. So the creeds, uh, Luther himself said the Christological creeds shouldn't be touched because they're accurate. So Luther said. The, the answer is the authority of Scripture, the priesthood of every believer, and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry so that you can recite the creed forever and if you go somewhere and somebody who is not a Christian says well you're a Christian what do you believe and you can recite it back well what's it mean why should I believe it I don't know they just told me that's what I'm supposed to believe so yeah you're right that's something they can handle but think about this Luann and all of us why did they martyr Tyndale he wanted to translate the scriptures into the common vernacular. An educated people are a danger to the hypocrites, right? And so by keeping us in the dark, we can't know, we can't challenge, we can't understand. And if you say, well, the, the reader determines the meaning, and then the, the reader of the most power, his meaning prevails. Go ahead, Peter. So, Bob, kind of to summarize then, what you just said is the antidote to both internal and external wolves. Your right. last two slides, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. The thing that must, must happen is the Word of God is to be taught clearly, comprehensively, consistently to the entire church so that everyone is given the tools needed to if necessary challenge even the elders were we to go astray and never should we say I'm right because I have status and you don't therefore you have to be quiet and I hope we can get that idea as we go now today we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper the same idea is there. We don't want to ever have a debate who's the greatest. You know why? Because you can't settle it because only God knows. And you yeah. teach that, Bob, and we appreciate it. Well, thank you. 
Um, quickly, one more thing I wanted to read. Paul Hill says, a monarchical bishop ruling over a number of congregations is clearly not in view. It just didn't happen. So the bishop has no idea even who's in the church that he's over. How can you help a little church in some little town when you're a bishop over in headquarters and you're in charge of everything? You don't even know who it is. It has to be local. It has to be personal. And it has to be accessible. And we have to truly care for one another. And the Holy Spirit sets elders by his work in people's lives so we recognize, yes, this is an elder. Uh, quickly, and then we got to close. Allison, uh, Alistair Begg was going over this same subject, and he used an analogy, and I liked it from an old uh, uh, beekeeper. He said, the queen bee in a hive, you can't expect that queen bee to be in charge of the hive in a five-mile radius. <laughs> okay, there you go. The value of a good analogy. So I appreciate your sharing, and we'll learn together. Keep in mind, we'll start on the same slide next time. We want to know about visitation. So if you want to study for next week, an overseer, Episcopos, is grounded in this idea of visit, the visitation. So it's signed to over to to look over on God's behalf what's going on. So we'll look, unpack that idea of a visitation, which is very clear in Luke Acts. Let's close the prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for the fellowship we have with you and one another. We pray that today as we uh, seek you and we share a fellowship meal, may we respect what you've done in each other's lives and pray for one another. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.